0: This week on The Dan Cave, just how good are the Seahawks? Some fans are still skeptical, even as the team appears rolling towards the playoffs. The Mariners make another trade. No, it's not Mitch Haniger, Not yet, anyway. If they did trade Hanegar, what would that trade look like? I'll get specific, and we'll take a look at their latest move. The Tweet of the Week, the Stat of the Week, and more. Step into The Dan Cave, next. Welcome to The Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Viend. Welcome back everybody, episode 21 of the Dan Cave. And we're we're in a really fascinating time right now because even though it's the off-season for the Mariners and the stretch run for the Seahawks, to me they're both equally engaging and equally fascinating. With the Mariners doing everything they're doing with their rebuild. Really dominating headlines in Major League Baseball right now. And the Seahawks putting the finishing touches on a surprisingly good season. And we're all feeling good about where they're at. Uh, So I put it out to you guys last night on Twitter. What I should lead with. And overwhelmingly about 80% of you said lead with the Seahawks. So that's what we're going to do. Monday Night Football. A 21-7 victor over the Minnesota Vikings. In a game that for all intents and purposes almost guaranteed the Seahawks a playoff spot. They would have to literally lose their last three games to finish 8-8 eight and eight, uh, to miss the playoffs. If they win Sunday against the 49ers, they're in. If they lose Sunday and beat the Cardinals in Week 17, they're in. The Kansas City Chiefs game in Week 16 is essentially meaningless, although it should be fun, Sunday night football and all, and we'll talk about that. At a little later time, but really an impressive performance on Monday because Minnesota still, even though they got off to a rough start this season, had some injuries on defense last year's number one overall defense in the NFL. Really tough. A lot of great players, a lot of talent, very physical. Uh, They play the run well. They rush the passer well. They had a 10 sack game against the Lions earlier this year. They've only been giving up 99 yards rushing. To teams this year, Um, the Seahawks ran for 217, I believe. And even if you take out Russell Wilson's rushing total, um, they ran for over 150, which has been their average throughout this season. The passing game wasn't there. Russell, only 77 yards passing, just couldn't connect on the big plays. Uh, Had the one to, to David Moore that should have been a touchdown, but the young receiver just didn't get both feet in. Had an opportunity, should have dragged um, his back foot, and that would have been a touchdown. But, you know, we've talked about this, and, and the way the Seahawks are playing offensively and their style of play and their commitment to the run, and then building the play action pass and taking deep shots off that, how good they can be on any given Sunday or Monday is really dependent on whether or not Russell can avoid the big mistakes, and hit the big plays. So what was impressive about Monday's game is didn't hit any of those big plays and had the huge mistake. The old-school Russell Wilson backspin 180 trying to throw the ball away but throwing a pick at the end of the half was terrible. It was terrible. It was exactly the kind of play that made me go off On his lack of progression this year after the Charger game. Um, And we hadn't seen any plays like that until that one, but that one was big at the time. It was only 3 0. It would have been at least another field goal, but an opportunity for a touchdown and uh, inexcusable. Fortunately, um, the linebacker Kendricks slipped and fell to the turf, didn't uh, have enough because he was wide open. It would have been a pick six if he had kept his feet. So avoided, um, avoided a really really bad play, uh, or a worse play there. But it the Seahawks kind of reminded me of of a pitcher when he doesn't have his good fastball, a power pitcher, a James Paxton when he doesn't have that good ninety eight ninety nine mile an hour fastball and he's unable to spot it and locate it. So he goes to his changeup more, he goes to his breaking pitches more, tries to keep hitters off balance. They really they stuck. To who they are. They stuck to their game plan. They didn't panic. They didn't take an inordinate number of deep shots. Or try to throw the ball more. To try and get some points on the board. The first half felt a lot like the Chicago game in week two in that sense. The difference is. Beginning of the second half in that game. Pete Carroll panicked. Told Brian Schottenheimer to, to throw the ball a bunch. To try and get some points on the board. Get him some breathing room. Get him back in the game. Didn't do that this time. Stuck with the run. Stuck with the run. Stuck with the play. Stuck with their philosophy. And it ended up paying off uh, a couple of defensive plays at the end to make it um, look like a blowout. But really, the most encouraging thing from that game should be, to those of us watching it, that they went up against one of the most physical teams in the league and beat them physically. In the first half, it felt like one of those games where we were just a play or two away from breaking it open. That they, It didn't seem like Minnesota had any chance to move the ball consistently against us um, or completely stop us from being able to run the football and control the clock a little bit, regardless of whether Wilson was going to hit some big plays or not. Um, Second half, until they blew it open at the end, there were a couple of dicey moments where it started to feel more like the Washington game last year with Cousins at the helm, where... You let a team hang around long enough, something fluky happens, they make a play, and they steal a victory. But even though it was close until the end, the fact that they physically were winning the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball, getting consistent pressure on Cousins from the front seven, showing us some new blitz packages, and then getting push every time they ran the football, once again, without DJ Fluker, and Jordan Simmons playing well again at right guard. That's a storyline that we need to keep an eye on because it could lead to a much bigger story. And we'll focus on that in the next couple of weeks ahead. But again, it's another week of evidence. It's another week to put the first two weeks in our rearview mirror. And essentially, what's impressive about this is the job that Pete Carroll has done. In refocusing this team and getting them back to their core values, their core philosophies, and finding that identity that they lacked the last two years. He did it in the offseason with all the coaching moves and the player moves. And he did it after week two. We knew there was a conversation between Carroll and Schottenheimer after the Chicago game that, hey, and and he took some of it on himself that week as well. Said, Hey, this is on me. I need to communicate to Schottenheimer exactly how we need to play and I need to then step away from that process and and not get involved in it and and let him commit us to that style of play. And now for the first time I heard a report this week that, that that conversation actually happened on the plane flight back from Chicago. Everything Pete Carroll has told us was going to happen is happening since that week two loss to the bears he's stuck to it and it's paying dividends what did we say at the beginning of the year what was my prediction eight and eight nine and seven missing the playoffs but we'd start to feel good about some momentum that was being built towards next year with these younger players pretty dead on right except this team has exceeded my expectations and i think most of yours not all of yours though Not all of yours. Unbelievably to me, there are still some skeptics out there. And I don't mean to pick on anybody because this guy's a really good Twitter follow of mine. And and we've interacted a few times. But I'm going to call out Brandon from Twitter, at 17power, because he is our Tweet Tweet of the Week. 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 And this week's Tweet of the Week from Brandon. I was... I was talking about how impressive they are and um, and some of the good things I saw from the game. And he interjected himself into a conversation that uh, Mike Salk from Cairo 710 had started about the job Pete Carroll's doing. And this was the tweet from Brandon. We were three missed field goals last year from being 12 and four. And this year we're three missed field goals from having the reverse record of what we have. So therefore clearly implying that he's he doesn't think that this year's team, and we tweeted back and forth a little bit after this, that he doesn't think this year's team is any better than last year's, and that that last year's failed to meet expectations, and that this year's is a little bit of fool's gold, and I could not disagree with that more. You know, I I, I think sometimes we forget pretty easily how what things look like in the moment, and... And yeah, when you, when you say it like that, and I remember there were moments last season where I felt that way too. Gosh, if Blair Walsh had just made those f- couple of field goals, you know, things would have been a lot better. But here's the difference. Ask yourself this. And I've got some numbers here too that that I'll I'll give you for perspective here in a moment. Just ask yourself this though. If that Seahawks team had snuck into the playoffs last, last year, if Blair Walsh had made a couple of those field goals and they had gotten into the playoffs, do you have any sense of confidence whatsoever that they would have had any chance to win a playoff game? Seriously? I mean, they lost four of their last five at home last year. They lost to a Redskins team that was missing 12 starters, including three on the offensive line. They got taken to the woodshed by the Rams, beat by 35 points at home. Just completely embarrassed. In the second to last week of the year. So, (laughs) Saying they were thirty. Three field goals away from being 12-4 and is like saying the Mariners were one player away from being a World Series contender last year. They were a veteran-laden team last year. Russell Wilson was pulling off a magician's act on a weekly basis to keep them in games. But they were a deeply flawed roster and a deeply flawed team. They had a horrible locker room. An offensive line that didn't allow for any kind of consistent success at all. This year's team's younger, faster. They're playing in a way that's sustainable and consistent. This team can win. Again, they're, they're not one of those teams... You can beat Minnesota at home, not playing your best. But to get into the playoffs and go on the road, they'll have to play their best. But... This team is, is capable of going on the road and beating the other teams in the NFC if they play well. Last year's was not. Even if they had gotten lucky in the wildcard round, they would have gotten run by the top teams in the NFC last year. Completely run. You don't think this year's team can go on the road and win in Dallas? We physically dominated them here at CenturyLink Field, and yeah, they're playing better, and they look a little different with Amari Cooper. But do you think Dak Prescott's unbeatable in the playoffs? If the Seahawks run the football consistently and Russell makes some plays, then they would go to the Rams, a team they know better than anybody in the league does, and they've played extremely tight with them twice, and the Rams... League's figuring them out a little bit. The last couple of weeks, they haven't looked like themselves. They haven't been able to dominate. Then you go on the road against New Orleans, presumably, as the one seed. The league may have caught up to them a little bit in the last couple of weeks. Drew Brees has been contained. They haven't looked like themselves. I'm just saying, it would be a long shot. But this team is capable of doing it. Last year's team was not. 2017, the Seahawks ended the season ranked 14th overall in DVOA, 14th on offense, 13th on defense. This year with a younger roster and still some big holes to fill, they're 9th overall. 9th on offense, 15th on defense but significantly improved on offense. The top, and, and we've talked about DVOA before. If you don't know the stat, look it up. I'm not going to go over it again. But it's year in and year out. It's a very, very, very consistent indicator of a team's success. During the Seahawks Super Bowl run, they were number one in overall DVOA, number two in overall DVOA, number one in defensive DVOA by a landslide. Top five teams this year, right now, ranked in order. Kansas City, the Chargers, the Rams, New Orleans, Chicago. Very consistent indicator of probable success. And the Seahawks are number nine overall right now. So I just, I wanted to shout out to Brandon. Don't want to throw him under the bus, but I just wanted to make the point. And and he just, he had the most concise, you know, he had the clearest point on Twitter, but many of you have have expressed similar sentiment. Some of you are still skeptical about what's going on with this team. Um, I couldn't be more pleased. Uh, the salary cap was announced this week. It's gonna be between 187 and $191 million, the biggest percentage jump since the salary cap started. The Seahawks at that number are projected to have anywhere between 56 and $60 million available. And that is while not enough money to go out and sign a bunch of big name free agents from outside the organization is going to allow them to extend the guys they want to extend and to keep the core and continue to move forward. And some interesting questions uh, remain to be seen. And it's too early to get into all of them. Jaron Reed will be eligible for an extension. Uh, They got to do something with Justin Coleman uh, certainly, you could address Russell Wilson's situation, but there's no, he's got another year on his deal and quarterbacks are handled differently, so maybe you wait on that one. The big one is Frank Clark. And at the beginning of the season, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if he deserved the kind of money that defensive ends are getting, the Khalil Mack kind of money. And what Demarcus Lawrence is going to want. What Jadavian Clowney is going to want. What Ezekiel Ansah is going to want. And Clark's younger than those guys. Uh, well, younger he's not younger than Clowney. But he's younger than Ansah. And he's younger than Lawrence. I just wasn't sure that he was a game changer. But I do now. I do now? I am now. <laughs> I am sure. Let's get my tenses right there. 11 sacks on the season and more than that he's he's become a guy that and those 11 sacks have come while he's been the focal point of of opposing offenses the Seahawks don't really have a great number two they've kind of come at teams from a variety of angles with blitzes and and, in different packages and and they're they're getting more pressure it seems lately with those but Clark even though he's being doubled a lot and focused on is consistently getting pressure playing at an extremely high level with a really high motor, playing the run well, going sideline to sideline, chasing plays down to the opposite sideline, and now he's becoming a leader. He's becoming a leader. Pete Carroll's been telling us that for about a year now, but you can't blame most of us for being skeptical because, if you recall, the cloud that hung over Frank Clark when he was drafted and the domestic violence case, and there were questions about his character. There were questions about whether the Seahawks should have drafted him in the first place. So to hear him being referred to as a leader um, may have sounded like a stretch, but not anymore. I, I think he's an emotional leader for these guys. I think in the way he goes about his business, he's a leader and his comments after the game were just golden. To paraphrase, I'm sure you've heard him. To paraphrase, basically said, I don't care what Richard Th- Sherman says or thinks about us. He was referring again, as we look forward to another game with the 49ers, to the, the comments that Sherman made a couple weeks ago where he said the Seahawks are a middle-of-the-road team. Clark said, we're a middle-of-the-road team. He's He's got enough things to worry about down there in San Francisco because they're not going anywhere. And he said, I'm tired of talking about it. This is my defense now. The Richard Sherman era is over. And I thought they were big words, and I thought they were meaningful. This is a team that's playing like that. Like they believe that they're the next group. And hopefully as they continue to grow, we'll stop ever hearing the term Legion of Boom. They need to retire that. It's over, none of the players are here anymore. We need to move on from that. Stop comparing it. We're talking two, three years ago now that that group was solid. So let's move on. Frank Clark, I believe, is worth every penny of that extension. And we'll just have to see how the team handles it now. He's already come out and said, hey, if they place the franchise tag on me, I'm going to sign it, and I'm going to play under it, and we'll go from there. Um, I think that's great. The Seahawks don't have to worry about a holdout. And it might actually make them more willing to sign him to an extension. But they're going to have to play this balancing act. And they're going to have to do it better than they did five years ago because... They stacked too many of those contracts up on top of each other and ultimately it reached a breaking point where we had to make all those tough decisions last year. So they're not going to be able to keep everybody. Maybe they can't keep Justin Coleman at that number. Just to touch a little bit on my feelings about Jordan Simmons. He's playing so well in his two starts this year with Fluker out. The Seahawks have run for 270 yards against the Rams and 217 against the Vikings. I thought that Fluker was a must-sign, a guy you had to extend long-term. But maybe now you don't. You let him walk. He figures into the compensatory draft pick formula. Maybe you get a pick back. And you go with Jordan Simmons, you save money there, and you can spread some of that money around, keep some of these other guys. So we'll see how they handle that. But I am fully 100% Team Frank Clark on board with whatever they want to pay him as an extension because I think he's a game-changing player. San Francisco again this week. In San Francisco, and again, based on Clark's comments, I'm. you get nervous sometimes when you play a team so close together. You know, it was a pretty easy victory for the Seahawks two weeks ago, but there was some cause for concern because gave up 400 yards passing to Nick Mullins. Well, I don't think that's going to happen again because Frank Clark specifically mentioned that in his post-game comments Monday, how pissed off they are at how they performed against the 49ers. And I think they're going down there with a chip on their shoulder to show that that you can't do that to us again. So, uh, and then just knowing everything that's on the table, being able to wrap up a playoff spot if they win on Sunday. I'm looking for um, another decisive win and then um, come home to wrap it up with two games at home against the Chiefs and against the Cardinals. Uh, If they run the table, obviously they get to 11 wins. But... I don't think that you can look at this season as anything other than a resounding success. A resounding success. Not only is this team moving in the right direction, but they have some great pieces in place. They have money to spend. They have flexibility in their payroll. They could add an outside free agent or two next year. And And I do think they'll add someone to that front seven in that respect, but I don't think it's going to be a big name. I think they're just going to try and keep their guys and manage that payroll as effectively as possible. All right, let's get to the Mariners because they were busy again. They were busy again. And uh, the first thing I I want to say is, is I'm glad to hear that Jerry Depoto is doing better. I haven't heard specifically today if he's on his way back to Seattle, he had stayed one more night in Las Vegas last night after being released from the hospital with blood clots in his lungs. Very, very scary situation. At first, they reported that DePoto was just not feeling well, that he was ill, and then it came out that he had the blood clot in his lungs. And Angie Mentink actually tweeted out that her husband dealt with this um, in the past and that uh, their specialist told them that this is a really dangerous situation. And most of the time when blood clots in the lungs are diagnosed, it's in the morgue. And so, scary situation. Jerry Depoto on his hospital bed, dealing with a serious situation, but yet completing a three-team deal from his bed. So, if you haven't heard by now, the Carlos Santana era in Seattle is over after a week. He gets traded back to Cleveland, where he was uh, born and raised, so to speak. Came up as an Indian farmhand and, and developed there. He goes back to Cleveland. Cleveland and Tampa Bay exchange some pieces and then what Seattle gets back is Edwin Encarnacion from Cleveland and a competitive balance draft pick, which right now sits at number 77 overall from Tampa Bay. They also get one year of salary relief. And so Santana was signed for two years at about 17 per with some prorated uh, signing bonus money due to him also of about three and a third. So basically, let's say he was $20 million a year for the next two years Encarnacion had 1 year left on his deal at about 21.5 some money was also exchanged but basically they save a year of salary commitment they get an additional draft pick so now they have 3 of the top let's say 80 picks in the draft this next year that's significant and and they still have a guy who even at 35 years of old 35 years of age kind of reminiscent of Nelson Cruz late in his career still hits a ball out of the ballpark 32 home runs last year, right-handed hitter to balance out the lineup. Um, can still crush the ball. You don't want him playing defense, so he's, he's pretty much strictly a DH at this point in his career, but still has some value. Uh, drove in 100 runs last year, and he's, a, he's another guy that gets on base, that walks um, nearly as much as he strikes out, puts the bat on the ball, and that has value. Possibly to the Mariners, makes their lineup. I don't know. I don't know if it makes their lineup better than it would have with Santana in the lineup. I think you could have counted on similar production from those two players, but could still bring value in trade, too. There are still a number of teams in the American League looking for a designated hitter. Nelson Cruz has multiple suitors. And I think once that market settles, um, then Encarnación could be on the move as well and bring back another young piece or two in this rebuilding effort. It's. Um, it's interesting to note that right after this trade yesterday, there were two national baseball reporters that said that their sources were telling him that that Tampa Bay wanted Encarnacion, and they were working on a separate deal to send him to Tampa, and that that was going to happen. And then um, a reporter who covers the Rays came out and said, nope, that's not happening, at least not right now, and the Mariners have said nothing specific's being discussed between the two teams either, but... I'd be shocked if Encarnacion ends up on the opening day roster. Uh, Before the trade happened, I had spent quite a bit of time on Wednesday um, trying to find a good trade comp for Carlos Santana. Um, Trying to find another aging first base type uh, that was traded in his mid-30s and what he brought back, what the, what the Mariners could conceivably expect to get in return if they had traded Carlos Santana. <laughs> so just when I was about to delete all that and, and, and throw it all away and just chalk it up as time wasted, I think it still kind of works for Encarnacion too. Encarnacion is a couple years older than Santana. He's 35 years old. But the trade comp I had found for Santana, interestingly enough, was the Adam Lind trade in 2016 uh, when the Mariners got Lind from the Milwaukee Brewers in 2016. Um, Lind was 33 at the time, going on his year 34. He was coming off a decent season 272, 330, 465. Um, So he was still productive. At that point in his career, uh, but here's the big difference: is Lind was only making eight million dollars, and Carnacion is making twenty-one. As I said, Lind brought back three lower-level minor league players, um, a couple of international signings. None of them were over nineteen years old. None of them were above single A. The names Daniel Masaki, Carlos Herrera, and Freddy Peralta. Masaki never pitched in the Brewers' system. Herrera has never made it past single A and struggled there. Uh, Freddy Peralta obviously is a name that we know. 19 years old, he cracked their rotation late last year. Struck out 96 in 78 innings. Really looks like a nice little piece in their rotation moving forward. Um, Those are what you refer to as lottery tickets. At the time we made that trade, nobody thought any of those guys were going to amount to anything. And so, hey, we got Adam Lynn for three lottery tickets. And one of them turned out to be a pretty nice piece. Again, because of the money, I don't think we can expect to get three prospects in an Encarnacion trade. But if, once again, the Mariners are willing to pay down some of that deal, then then he could get moved, and I think he could get moved and bring back a a fairly significant piece. Somebody on Twitter yesterday, I think it was Joe Doyle, actually, who we've referenced on this podcast a couple of times, really follows the Mariners' system in and out. He said uh, Tampa Bay has a, when the reports surfaced, that uh, he still may be on the move and be flipped immediately back to Tampa Bay. Um, Joe said, hey, they've they've got a competitive balance A pick that's sitting at 35 right now that I'd love to have. That could be conceivable, where the Rays, you know, take on Encarnacion. Maybe we still send them some money, and yet they send us back another even higher, basically a sandwich pick after the first round. I could see something like that. Um, there are other needs the Mariners have, obviously, just to fill out this year's roster. But I think, I think the whole idea of picking up Encarnacion, a guy who is is still able to hit the ball out of the ballpark, is there's got to be some interest in him around the league, and and I don't think he's going to be a mariner for very long. So still no word on a Mitch Haniger trade. There was really no buzz around that at the winter meetings, other than Jerry DePoto got a little bit more specific when asked about whether he was shopping Hanegar, whether he was open to trading him. He has often said he's he's exactly the kind of guy you want to build around. And and we look at him as a cornerstone piece that will still be in his prime by the time this roster is ready to compete and a guy that does everything right and is super affordable for the next four years and we're not in any rush to trade him. However, he did also qualify that by saying, we've been very honest to teams. And we tell teams exactly what we're looking for. And I thought it was interesting how he framed that. He said, people ask us all the time, how are we able to make so many trades? And I think it's because of how we deal with teams. We're very upfront, very black and white. And he says that he has told teams specifically what would be required to even begin discussions in a Mitch Haniger trade. I saw one report last week that Uh, Some unnamed source uh, was cited as saying that he's told teams that he would need three top 100 prospects with the headliner being a starting pitcher. That would make some sense. But once again, I went looking for a comp. And the one that I've seen referenced the most was Adam Eaton, traded from the White Sox to the Nationals in 2016. So I pulled it up and I think it's a fair comp and actually works even more in favor of the Mariners. So Adam Eaton in 2016 was between his 27-28 year old seasons. Same as Mitch Hanegar. Same exact age. They were both coming off really productive seasons in which they got MVP votes. Eaton actually finished 19th in the MVP race. Uh, he had like 1% of the vote. Haniger had of the votes, I think, last year. Finished actually higher in the MVP race than Eaton did coming off that year. And Eaton had played uh, parts of five seasons already in the major leagues by the time he was traded. Hanegar only three. So Hanegar actually has more team control. And that makes him more valuable than Adam Eaton. I would also argue that he has more power... That part of his game may be a little more attractive than Adam Eaton's was at the time. Here's what the White Sox got from the Nationals in exchange for Adam Eaton pitchers Lucas Giolito, Reynaldo Lopez, and Dave Dunning. They were the Nationals' number one, number three, and number six prospects. Giolito was number three overall in all of baseball, according to MLB Pipeline. Incidentally enough, that same year, JP Crawford was number two overall. Mariners acquired from the Phillies a couple weeks ago. Lopez was the number 38 overall prospect. That's a haul. And it sounds very similar to what reportedly Jerry DePoto has said he's looking for. A number three overall prospect, pitcher, a number 38 overall prospect, pitcher. And another guy that may have some upside. Here's what this would look like today. The team that ma- still makes the most sense has been mentioned the most as a suitor. And I think is the best trade fit, as I said last week, is the Atlanta Braves. They are loaded. And in particular, they're loaded with pitching. I just heard this reinforced again this morning on the MLB network. A bunch of guys, Dave Dombrowski, some former GMs, and studio hosts all sitting around talking about trade scenarios. And they said the same thing. The Braves could give up two or three of their top 10 pitchers in their system and not even feel it and still and still be viewed as a loaded system. The biggest name in their system that most people seem to gravitate towards is Tuki Toussaint. He's actually the number four prospect, but they can make a deal without even giving him up because some people think he's going to be in the rotation this year. Here's what the names would look like. And I'll let you go out and Google these guys and, and read their scouting reports. I highly recommend MLB Pipeline. Really easy reading format. They break down every team's top thirty prospects, and then when you click on the prospect, it brings up a detailed scouting report with, with their scouting grades, their tool grades, and everything. So, the Braves' number one prospect, Mike Soroka, six foot seven, right-handed starting pitcher. Their number three prospect. Ian Anderson starting pitcher. Soroka made it to Triple A last year, dominated. Ian Anderson made it to Double A last year and dominated. An outfielder Chris, Christian Pash. I assume it's Pash, it could be Pashe. Um a real toolsy center fielder, kind of similar to Jared Kellenick in his profile, although I don't think he projects to hit for as much power, He's strictly uh an on-base plus runner, uh good defensive center fielder. So that's that's just an example because that's the Braves 1, 3, and 6. And again, the crazy thing is even if the Braves parted with those three players, they would still be viewed as having a top 10 farm system. They're that loaded. If the Braves called today and made that offer and we found out that Jerry Depoto turned that down, I would be livid as a Mariner fan because this is the kind of trade that can put a rebuild over the top. They're saying the Mariners have have taken their farm system from 30th, dead last in the league, as far as overall rankings, up into the 15 to 20 range. I've heard some 16s and 17s. This would put them top 10, possibly top 5. And it would give you two big upside, top of the rotation, starting pitching candidates to go along with Sheffield and Dunn and Logan Gilbert, their first round pick last year. Sam Carlson, when he recovers from Tommy John surgery. Now you're talking about five or six big-time top-of-the-rotation pitching candidates. Then you still have Eric Swanson, who's a back-end guy, and Marco Gonzalez. So now you're loaded with high-end quality starting pitching, which A, can give you a dynamic rotation, and B, when you get a surplus in that area, you can turn around in a couple years when you need that one piece to put you over the top and trade one of those guys. That would be a dynamic, game-changing type trade. Will it be offered? Don't know. And we're not going to know until Bryce Harper signs. I I think that's the tipping point. Any team that wants to make a big splash with a dynamic young outfielder, if they think they have the money to spend and that they could be a destination for Bryce Harper, they may take a shot at that first because you don't have to give anything up. But teams that miss out on Harper... I think that's when the phone calls will come. I would still put it at 50-50 that Haniger breaks spring training with the Mariners. Because I do believe that Jerry DiPoto really loves the player and believes that he can be part of the rebuild and be the centerpiece of this thing when it's ready to compete again. But I also believe that there's a trade out there to be had, if you call him, And I believe a trade just like we've outlined here as just a hypothetical would certainly get him thinking and probably, I can't imagine he would say no to that deal. All right, still talking about the market and work to be done for the Mariners, of which sources say Mariner people are still saying there's a lot of moves left to be made. We're still going to be extremely active with the rest of this off season. I thought we'd jump into a stat of the week that works in their favor just to give you an idea of what they might be looking at. Here's our stat of the week. Yay! It's the stat of the week. Our stat of the week is 105. Okay, that was our stat of the week. No, so what? What is the 105? That's how many, by my count. That's how many relief pitchers are left on the free agent market, and that's that's the single biggest need. The Mariners have. They've shipped out a lot of relief pitchers. A lot of the arms they have are intriguing and have some upside, but they're unproven. And so Jerry Depoto has been open about saying, we need to sign some bullpen guys. And did you notice, for those of you paying attention, for my faithful 30 to 35 listeners, did you know, or did you notice, what Jerry said about the relief pitching market this week? He said, that he's looking for guys coming off a down year, but who have shown the potential to be really effective relief pitchers. He's trying to take advantage of that, signing some guys off bad years, looking for a bounce back. Where'd you hear that first? We talked about it last week. It's exactly what I thought he would be targeting and it makes a lot of sense for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, sometimes relief pitchers have injury problems. Sometimes they're just not used properly. Other times, uh, they they just don't throw as many innings because of situational reasons and they come back fresh the next year. I likened it last week to NFL kickers. Sometimes those guys have good years and then they come back and have a bad year and then they come back and, and fix a technical flaw or a mechanical flaw or whatever and have another great year. So... Um, He's looking at those types of players. And I'm not going to get into specific names because I'm not going to parse through 105 guys. Some of those guys, 20, 25 of those guys, are going to get big money and the Mariners aren't going to be in on that market. But the vast majority of those players, there's going to be a lot of leftovers and bargain bins to sift through. And the other upside to signing guys like that is when you're in a process like the Mariners are in, if you get lucky on one or two of those guys and you sign them and they have good first halves, there's a lot of demand every year for solid relief pitching at the deadline. You can flip them for more prospects. So keep an eye on that. I think that'll start to take shape over the next couple of weeks. Um, Mike Leak, I still expect to be moved at some point. Ryan Healy, I still expect to be moved. D. Gordon, possibly. Kyle Seeger's the interesting one to me. And here's what I want you to keep an eye on if the Mariners are able to trade Encarnacion without sending out a bunch of money with him, if they're able to find a team that values him enough to give up a prospect or two and and not require a bunch of money from us, if we're able to basically save money by trading Encarnacion, the Mariners may be in a position where with with these moves, with shedding Santana's salary commitment for next year, knowing that Felix comes off the books next year, you're not going to add any big name or big money players. You're going to trade Jay Bruce at some point and save his salary. And then if you can shed most of Encarnacion's salary commitment, then it frees you up to be flexible enough to send a bunch of money out with Kyle Seager to get him traded. It's no secret that they would like to trade him. They have had discussions with teams, but they would have to... buy down that contract pretty significantly. I still think it makes more sense to just let him play the first half and see if being healthy and that foot being better and uh, making some adjustments in the offseason, if he can come back and just bounce back, have a good first half and rebuild some value. Or, But if you can find another team that thinks they can do that and you can move Encarnacion and save some money, it frees you up to send some of that savings out with Kyle Seeger and get him dealt as well so keep your eye on that as we move forward too, if you see a trade of Encarnacion for prospects then I think the phone calls regarding Kyle Seeger could really start to heat up, and honestly I just want him to trade Encarnacion because I have a hell of a time saying his name, kind of drives me crazy if he sticks around I'm just going to call him Edwin will that work? Alright, that's going to wrap it up for the Dan Cave this week. Next week we're going to preview the Alamo Bowl. WSU takes on Iowa State on Friday the 28th. We'll take a look at that. We'll check in with the Mariners see if they've made any more moves. We'll get ramped up for a big Sunday night football game at CenturyLink with the Seahawks hosting the Kansas City Chiefs. Can the Seahawks pull off the upset like the Chargers did last night against the Chiefs? We'll try to answer that question next week. Until then... Reach me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. If you're not following me, please do. If you're not interacting with me, please do let me know what you think of the show. You can email me here at thedancaveshow at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for, for your support. Let's meet again next week right back here in the Dan Cave.